Welcome to Cato's F.A. Hayek. Wait, we're not in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium. I'm disoriented. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Thank you for coming, and thanks to those of you uh, tuning in online. Uh, my name is Gene Healy. I'm Senior Vice President for Policy at Cato, and I'm going to do the introductions and a little light moderating for today's State Policy Leadership Forum. Uh, with a special focus on fiscal responsibility, tax policy, and educational freedom. Uh, we're very pleased to have with us today Governor Kim Reynolds of the great state of Iowa. She's Iowa's 43rd governor, serving that role since 2017, and the state's first female chief executive. Among Governor Reynolds' Accomplishments in office, she's delivered the largest tax cuts in state history, including a reduction of the corporate tax rate from 12 to 9.8%, if I have that right, and an abolition of Iowa's inheritance tax. Under Governor Reynolds' reforms, Iowa's income tax structure will shift from a nine-bracket system uh, with a top rate of almost 9% down to a single, simple 3.9% flat tax. Uh, for those efforts, uh, among others, Governor Reynolds has earned the highest grade of A on the latest edition of the Cato Fiscal Policy Report Card on America's Governors. Governor Reynolds has been equally aggressive on the education policy front. Last month, uh, she signed into law the Students First Act under which education funding follows students and parents who enroll their children in an accredited private school will receive an amount equal to the per pupil funds allocated by the state to uh, public school districts, uh, roughly $7,500. That will be deposited into an education savings account to be used for tuition, fees, and other qualified educational expenses. Uh, the governor's co-panelists today are uniquely well-suited to uh, further explore these issues in conversation with her. Uh, Chris Edwards in the center there uh, holds the Kilts Family Chair in Fiscal Studies at the Cato Institute, and he's co-author with Alana Blumsack of the aforementioned Governor's Report Card. Now, Chris has sometimes been accused of grading on a curve, but he gave a lot of Fs this year. So it's not like everyone gets a smiley face sticker. And as he can tell you, every time a new edition of the report card comes out, he has to spend some time holding the phone away from his ear as various governors, chiefs of staff, uh, call to scream at him over their boss's lousy grades. Uh, Chris is also the editor of downsizinggovernment.org, uh, your comprehensive online guide to shrinking the beast and he hails from the great state of Canada. <laughs> Our final panelist, Neil McCluskey, is like myself, New Jersey born and bred. Our home state's governor, Phil Murphy, got an F. Uh, Neil is the director of Cato's Center for, uh, for Educational Freedom and uh, the author of The Fractured Schoolhouse. A continuing theme of his work is that our one-size-fits-all public schooling system tends to feed culture war conflict, and that having funding follow students as uh, in, say, the Students First Act uh, can go a long way towards diffusing those sorts of conflicts. Um, 
I should mention that we will uh, we will we will have a conversation on these issues. Uh, we will later be uh, taking questions, both from the in-person and online audience. And uh, if you're out there in Twitter land uh, talking about this event, you should use the hashtag uh, Governor Gov Report Card. Um, and with that, I'm going to get out of the way and hand it over to Chris to kick off today's discussion. Great. Thanks a lot, uh, Gene. Welcome to Cato. Governor Reynolds, delighted uh, you're here. I'm just going to provide like a minute or so of additional uh, background, then we can get into uh, the discussion. I became aware of the governor's achievements back when I did the 2020 governor's report card. Uh, in that uh, report card, she got the second uh, uh, highest grade, second only to Governor Sununu of New Hampshire. And then in 2022, she continued on with her tax reforms and she got the, the highest grade. Uh, in my view, Governor Reynolds has been the most impressive, uh, put in place the most impressive set of tax reforms in recent years uh, than any state in the nation. Uh, she's also held the line on spending. She put into place occupational licensing reforms. Uh, she has initiatives this year uh, to reform regulations in Iowa, to restructure uh, Iowa government, to reduce the number of agencies, as well as some school choice reforms, which Neil uh, will be talking about with, with the governor. Um, so on the tax reforms, as, as Jean mentioned, uh, the governor started uh, her tax reform drive in 2018 with cuts to the in, in, uh, top income tax rate and corporate tax rate. Uh, and as Jean mentioned, the, the top individual rate when all these reforms are put into place will drop from 8.9% down to just a 3.9% flat tax. And then on the corporate side, the rate dropped all the way from 12% to 5.5%. Really impressive reforms. So what, what motivated you or inspired you to do this series of reforms? Well, the great thing about Republican governors is we're very competitive. And so Chris has really challenged me to let me know that he's coming after that number one spot next year, <laughs> which means I'm going to have to continue to cut taxes for Iowans that I have the amazing opportunity to represent. Um, but it's not just cutting taxes. And I think we've had some states that have, have had some difficulties with that. They cut taxes, but they didn't keep spending in check and therefore ran into some issues down, down the line. So not only did we want to be competitive, but I also wanted to make sure that I could make investments in priorities that were important to Iowans, and that meant being able to fund education, uh, public safety, uh, we, ex we put of, uh, resources into broadband and housing and childcare, but overall we knew if we were going to grow our economy and get people to stay in our state and attract people to the state, we needed to be more competitive. So um, it's, it's actually been a a lot of fun. I want to tell you I'm excited about the results. It's challenging, but I've actually signed three tax cuts since taking office in 2017, so I'm really proud of the continued progression that we've made. And I can tell you without hesitation, we're not done. My goal is to get to zero uh, uh, individual income tax rate by the end of this uh, second term. So we're really focused on that. Uh, we would have probably taken a look at it this year, bringing it down just a little bit more. But I wanted to kind of take a just watch what was happening with the environment, with inflation and recession. Uh, we, we, did a, we, we always do a two-year, five-year budget. We did recession, non-recession, projected growth that we always base our budgets on. And we would have, I think, been okay, but you know, I just focused on um, education reform this year and then really taking a look 
at government and how we provide services to Iowans. So I'm going to run through the statistics one more time because I'm really proud of them. When I took office, our top rate was almost 8.98%. We had nine brackets. And uh, as you heard, we'll go down to a flat tax, 3.9%, and we'll continue to take that down. Our corporate uh, tax rate was one of the highest in the country, I think second, if not first, at nearly 12%. And uh, our, the goal is 5.5. And we took a big drop last year at 8.4, which we weren't projected to reach until 2026, and we were able to do that in the first year. So I'm very excited about the acceleration that we're seeing with that. And one of the other things that we did that, as I travel the state, um, we have an elderly population. Now, I see a lot of young people in the audience, so we're working really hard to change that. So uh, take a look at Iowa. I think you'll be surprised at what you see. Um, but we were taxing retirement income, and I was so tired of losing losing that valuable asset, which it is a valuable asset, to Florida and Arizona and some of those warm states. We, we do have a couple of months uh, in January, uh, December, where it's relatively chilly uh, in Iowa. And uh, I said to uh, Ron, and I said to Doug when Doug was the um, governor of Arizona, I don't care if they come down for a couple of our cold months in, ja in January and December, but I am not going to lose any more residents uh, to your state. So we, we the starting this year, we no longer tax retirement income. And I, I can tell you, I got a call from my father who can tell me how much more that means in his paycheck on a monthly basis. And he was pretty excited about it. So, you know, just we need to be competitive. And if I want business to be in the state, you know, those are the things that we need to do. And, and to be quite honest, uh, that's what my colleagues are doing. And so I'm very competitive by nature. Right? You might get that sense by the time we're done. But... You know, it's interesting. You mentioned maybe uh, uh, reducing the individual income tax all the way down to a zero percent uh, rate, abolishing it, which at first sort of blush seems a little radical. But as you know, there's nine uh, U.S. states that don't have individual income taxes. And the interesting thing about them is they're in all different parts of the country. There's red states, there's blue states, you know, Washington state and Tennessee, uh, Nevada, New Hampshire, Florida. Um, and they all managed to survive, and, and indeed all the, the states that have no income taxes are prospering and generally have high right. economic growth rates. And so it's really not as radical as it no. initially. No, it's not. And we did a – we're in town today with all, this weekend, this week with the Republican governors across the country, and 15 of our Republican governors has additional tax cuts on their agenda this year. So as I've indicated, that number is going to continue to grow, and if we're going to continue to be competitive, then we have to be aggressive. But again, that means growing – revenue, uh, looking at other um, issues that will help bring business uh, and industry to the state of Iowa, um, but then keeping spending in check, and that's key. The budget that I just proposed um, to uh, the legislature this year only spends, I think it's like 82% of what my projected revenue um, is. So, you know, that's those are the things that you have to do. I was looking at uh, a map the other day. You, you, uh, Iowa's got six uh, neighbors. On the one side, you've got South Dakota, a no-income tax state, very competitive. If you look at the data, they've got strong in-migration. Then on the other side, you've got Illinois, probably the worst fiscally-run state in the nation. The difference between Iowa and Illinois in terms of basic fiscal metrics is kind of amazing. Uh, Iowa's got AAA bond rating, low debt, low pension, uh, low unfunded pension. Uh, Illinois has got uh, very low credit rating, high debt, high, uh, high unfunded pension, 
what is, what accounts for the difference? Is it sort of well, like, is it just the different fiscal cultures have grown up over time, or what what do you attribute? I think it's just a philosophy too. I mean, we're a right to work state. I don't know if you said that. Also, they're not. Um, so a lot of differences. I was just meeting with a potential um, investor in the state of Iowa this week. We're hoping to land them. I think Illinois is my competition. And honestly, after walking through all of the differences that you just laid out, the last thing I said is I'm fairly certain that we'll be able to honor uh, the incentive package that we put together, and I'm not sure Illinois can even honor the pension program for the teachers and the state employees that are currently working in that state. So, you know, they might be able to offer the moon, whether they'll be able to actually deliver is something that you need to consider. So, you know, I just... Um, it's kind of who we are as a state, I think. I don't know. You know, they just have philosoph philosophical difference. It really is. I think Iowans know better what to do with their money uh, than government, and we continue to see growth in government over there, and they believe that they have all the answers, and we don't. And when you really, um, you know, let Iowans decide what they're going to do with their money, we see communities flourish. We see the state flourish. We see revenues grow. So it's, it, it, it works. You, you touched on the state budget, and this is where uh, you scored very well on the governor's report card, partly because you kept uh, spending really uh, in check. It's actually kind of amazing. Uh, governor Reynolds came into office in 2017. The first five years in office, she held the state budget to a 2% annual growth. The average state was 6%. Uh, we're in the middle of uh, fiscal 23 now. Uh, I think the Iowa budget's growing about 1%. The average for the 50 states is 6%. So what's your secret? How were you able uh, to do that? Uh, legislatures usually want to spend more money. I know. That's the problem, right? Uh, we do work very closely with our legislature. We do have both chambers are controlled by the Republicans. And, you know, we meet every year. So it's communicating, working together, um, setting expectations. But we know collectively we all want to continue to reduce taxes. And the only way that you can do that is keep spending in check. But not only have I been able to cut taxes, but as you heard, I mean, we've made historic investments in key priorities to Iowans. Education, since... Uh, fiscal year 12 uh, through 22, we've, we've increased funding in K-12 education by over a billion dollars. So, you know, we've continued to increase uh, in, in priorities, but we've still been able to continue to look for ways to uh, reduce the budget as well. So I, we've been able to do both. I think last year was under 1%, uh, my fiscal year, the fiscal year that we're in right now, growth. This year, um, revenue has increased, but again, I think it's, I think it's about a 3% increase, so still fairly modest. But but the largest percentage of that increase is because of school choice. Uh, we we actually were able to fund uh, putting the ESA in place, and so that's probably you know contributed to a little bit of a larger um, increase in funding this year. Maybe with that we should jump over to the school school choice uh, issues. And Neil, if you want to take it away. Sure. Well, you've already kind of hit at some of the fiscal stuff I was going to ask, but that's not really the interesting, the most interesting part. Uh, you mentioned that you're very competitive. And so I have one question, which is, uh, by some counts, Iowa is the third state with universal school choice. I don't actually count West Virginia because they're not quite there. Arizona was number we one. We don't either, just to make that clear. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to seem anti-mountaineer or something. But, <laughs> no, uh, I know. I, I'm Based kidding. on data. Yeah. Um, but I'm sort of curious how, one, did you let Arizona beat you to getting universal school choice? And then much more interesting is you've been working on it for a few years. What do you think sort of put you over the top yeah. this year? 
Well, I want to give a, just a huge shout out to um, both Arizona and West Virginia because, you know, it, it just to lead and to take a stance. And Doug has been working on this, had been working on this for a long time. So, um, but again, as you'll notice, our, the governors are competitive. So I tell Doug, well, it took you eight years to get to where you're at. We're doing it in three. So, but you're about to see this happen across the country. So it's just not Iowa. You're going to see additional uh, governors. Uh, I think kind of that'll set the bar and that's kind of where they'll be looking to go to implement it as quickly as they can. COVID was just a real pivotal point, not only for parents, I think, but for governors across the country. I see, you know, the data that we see right now really demonstrates that it was the wrong thing to do to keep the kids out of the classroom and the amount of um, loss, you know, is just staggering. And some of those kids will never get that back. We were one of the first states to get our kids back in the classroom. I'm really proud of that. Uh, we did it safely and responsibly, but we just could see that that is where they needed to be um, and how important it was. And so we've been able to minimize our learning loss. But to talk to parents and to students and to have, um, you know, schools actually sue me to keep the kids out of the classroom. And it was one of our largest school districts and had a tremendous impact on kids dropping out of school. So many of them were, I think it was 90-some percent of the kids were in free and reduced lunch that had dropped out. A lot of my minorities were impacted by that. And um, it just really hit a fine point with me because the parents that were in that school that had sued to stay closed, that had the financial resources, were able to put their child someplace else so they weren't impacted by not being in the classroom, not having a safe environment to learn, not having a hot meal, you know, which a lot of the kids didn't. And, you know, I just fundamentally disagree that that option for parents to decide what is the best environment for their child to learn and be the best that they can be can only be afforded to uh, families that have the financial means to do that. Every parent, regardless of income or zip code, should have that option. Um, to put their child, whether it's faith-based, whether it's, you know, a safer school because they're being bullied, maybe it's a gang-related, you know, whatever that reason may be, it, it shouldn't be decided by, it shouldn't be only um, available to individuals that have the resources to do it. And so we've been working on it for th th three years, but I think, and then, and then to be honest, just a little, just one other point, I think COVID gave parents just a front row seat to some of the things that was happening in the classroom, and they really didn't like what they saw. Um, you know, honestly, they just want a quality education for their kids in the core subjects. They want to continue to be the parents at home and just, again, help th prepare the kids for a successful future. And so um, we had more and more parents just reach out and ask, you know, you know, for the opportunity to make that choice. A, a very common objection to school choice, and we've heard it for the ESAs, is, well, there's no accountability. The, the money will just go out there and it'll be wasted. What's your answer? Is there accountability in this? There bill? is accountability in this because it's only accredited private schools, and so they go through a very similar accreditation process that our public schools um, do. And if you go to uh, our Department of Education website, you will see a very comprehensive list of the accreditation requirements uh, that they're held to. We did add some language into the bill, too, to ask for some additional requirements. We wanted to be respective also. Um, you know, of the private school system. But we, you know, I wanted to know what some of the outcomes were. We're investing 
in um, ESAs and and giving parents choice so we're funding the student and not the system but I also but I want to know some of those metrics we can aggregate the data but I want to know what how they're scoring what they're doing how they're doing and we've got just a, a small set of, of additional metrics that we've added to that but it's just not true they're held to uh, many of the same standards that the public schools are and in fact honestly if you'll go look it's a it's a very extensive list yeah, and of course, there's accountability by having to attract parents to your school, which it's yeah. almost never mentioned when people say there's no accountability. In well, oh, because that, really, that's what that they would, you know, they say, really, if they don't like my school, I, you know, they're paying to come here. And if they don't like what they're doing, they're going to leave. So, the, you know, the, the accountability is with the parents. Thank you for helping me remember that. <laughs> well, I, I, I only have like three talking points I always use, so I remember that one. <laughs> Um, I'm curious, though, also because Iowa is a relatively rural state, and yeah. a very common objection is this doesn't help rural families. Well, does it help rural families? Yeah, so um, uh, it, Iowa is very rural. Uh, I went to a public school system. We educated our daughters in a public school system, a rural public school system. My daughter is a public school teacher in a rural public school. So you can imagine she was at the condition of the state. You know, bless her heart. I said, this might be one of those times. It might not be very fun to have your mom be the governor of the state of Iowa talking about school choice. But I it, I truly believe with all my heart it elevates education overall. And she's not afraid of it. She's a great teacher. I'm very proud of her but so I had rural lawmakers in my own party that were kind of I couldn't get them on board and so I offered to go to their district to do um, town halls whatever and talk to the superintendents and just walk through some of the um, the reality of, of what it meant and to try to um, answer some of the misconceptions that were out there. And so I sat down with a lot of superintendents and principals and I said, I know I'm not here to convince you. I know you're not going to be convinced, but I believe it's the right thing to do. Here's why. But tell me, what are we doing that impacts your ability to really provide your students and be competitive in these rural school districts? And what I heard over and over and over is that there are just too many, it, it, too many restrictions, too many, you know, we were, everything was a shall, 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 like everything in government, which I forgot to talk about my realignment, so I want to get back there and talk about that before we uh, get done. We add, 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 and we never take away. It's referred to Chapter 12. I heard it over and over. Citizens don't know, but I can tell you teachers know about Chapter 12, principals know about Chapter 12, and superintendents. And I read the entire chapter, and it was a nightmare. It was outdated. It was so restrictive and p almost punitive. And so um, I said, well, I promise we'll look at that, and we'll change a lot of those shells to, or to May and give you more flexibility. The other thing is our average teacher salary in Iowa is about 59000 and but that's probably more reflected in our larger school districts, not so much in our rural school districts. And they just didn't feel like they could be competitive. And so we tried to look at existing funding in some of our categoricals, and we um, freed up some of the restrictions on that to allow them to only put that into teacher salaries, not administration, but only into bringing on new teachers or increasing, you know, that amazing, amazing individual that's in the classroom every day working with our kids to be able to pay them what they're worth. We have occupational sharing and we extended that where small school districts can share attended a principal or whatever, there's about 20 different categories that they can share. We extended that. That was a big thing for them. So so I, I, I made it, I, I think it was at least um, 
an offer to them to show them that I hear you, you're right, and we're going to give you some flexibility and some opportunity to be more competitive with your teachers. And that really, that in the primary helped bring some of my rural lawmakers on board. Interestingly, Utah, not long after you passed your bill, passed a similar bill, also uh, delivering more funding for teachers. And I think it's important to understand people often frame school choice as this is anti-teacher. And it's school choice in no way inherently is anti-teacher anyway, but this sort of putting it together with helping teachers, I think, is a smart way to go. But Chris, I think the governor teed up a question for you <laughs> on realignment, well, so I'm going to put this down. I, I wanted to just say real quick, having part of that discussion and really working with the superintendent, since it's passed, I've already again met with several, and so they, they've said things like, you know, I, I realize let, like if I'm not at the table, I'm on the table. We were a little bit, you know, focused on not letting you get ESA through, uh, but now we like what you've started to do with Chapter 12. Can we come back and continue to work on it? We will. We, we're really involved in registered apprenticeship programs in Iowa. I'm so excited about what we've done with those. Look at our first, we're the first state in the country to do a teacher's registered apprenticeship program that will bring a 1,000 into the pipeline over the next two years. 500 paraeducators and 500 teachers that we're growing within that's really helping to diversify our teaching population. It's it's awesome. Um, so we want to be able to kind of align some credit with the registered apprenticeship programs uh, that we have. And then I had another superintendent say, well, I don't like what you did. I didn't agree with the law, but it's the law. And so I can tell you what, I'm going to make my public school the best, the destination of choice. And that's the kind of culture that we want to drive. And so it's already happening. So it's kind of, it's going to be fun, I think, to see that. Thanks. Governor Reynolds, as I understand it, has sort of teed up two sort of reform of government um, uh, uh, strategies this year. One is on the regulatory front. She's called for an overhaul of, of Iowa state uh, regulations. Uh, and, um, and she's also called for a restructuring of, of Iowa government to reduce the number of agencies, the number of bureaucracy uh, to sell excess uh, state land that the, the state government doesn't need. And perhaps you can discuss each of those initiatives a bit. And, and truly, that's one of the ways we're going to continue to keep costs down. Down so that we can continue to keep that growth at a minimum and then continue to invest in priorities that are important to Iowans. So but we've spent the last six months really doing a deep dive into the executive branch, the agencies that are underneath me. We brought in a consultant to help us do that because you just don't, I have a very small team. I have an amazing rock star team. Uh, we've been able to get a lot done over the last several years because of them. But um, so you can't just tinker around the edges and hope to see results. So we brought a consultant in. We worked with all of the agencies. Uh, we hadn't done it for 40 years. And boy, after what we've uncovered as we've lifted the hood, I can't even imagine what is happening at the federal level. We are a small state. Um, not been done in 40 years. Come to find out, I have, uh, I had, well, I knew this, but 37 uh, executive branch 
agencies that were part of my cabinet, 37. Uh, we It was uh, out of line with other states that were uh, similar in size and population, Arizona, or no, excuse me, Arizona, Arkansas, Mississippi, Oklahoma, all have same size population, same size budget, had about 15 agencies uh, that were um, under the executive branch. I think the real kicker for me, too, you talked about Illinois, as we did um, the review, we found out that we were spending, appropriating um, 2000 uh, per capita more than Illinois, that is four times our population. That's not good. And so um, we are going from 37 state agencies down to 16. Uh, really excited about it. I think it's about a $214 million savings over four years. And I think that's probably conservative, to be quite honest, as we continue to realign uh, the services that we're providing Iowans. We did kind of, and I'm taking it through the legislature, so we'll have you know full transparency. Iowans can weigh in. Um, but we um, we had, did kind of a proof of concept. So I did um, our Department of Public Health and Human Services. We actually, through an MOU, combined them, two really, really large agencies. Uh, nobody lost their job, and none of the services were downgraded. And it is incredible, I think, the HHS, the department that we put together, you know, these are individuals that are struggling to get through a day and had to go through seven or eight different doors just to get an answer. I mean, how inefficient is that? And there's a cost to that. And then there's just no synergies and collaboration. It was very duplicative. There's a cost to that. So we did that. And then another great example that we've been able to share with the legislature is with um, the um, uh, Department of um, Inspections and Appeals and Workforce Development, their administrative law judges. Workforce, they were um, behind about 5,400 cases. We were able to merge the two, again, provide some efficiencies, and they eliminated that, that backlog in three months. And so um, I had some really good examples to share with the legislature, and the agencies that we brought together have together sat down with the committees and with Iowans and talked about why they agree with what we're doing and, and the direction that we're moving the state. So I actually won't be able to, I won't have to go off site to have a cabinet meeting. I can actually have a cabinet meeting in my office and we can really, I think, uh, just really talk about strategizing and better initiatives and just better better service to, to um, our citizens and we save money in the, in the out. Sounds like you're taking like a very data-driven approach to this, and it seems from what you've I've already said, there's sort of two. You know, the advantage of federalism, of course, is that the, the the 50 states not only compete with each other, they can learn from each other. And it seems like there's two ways you can sort of learn from other states. You can look at the data and look at how other states structure their government, but then also you have personal relationships with governors like Doug Ducey, who are are leading with a lot of reforms. And so it seems like there's those two ways you can learn about sort of best practices in other states. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I when we did occupational life license reform, we looked at what Doug had done in Arizona, and he really led on that too, and we came right in behind it. So you look at your existing state and what you're dealing with, look at what some of the other states are, look at the metrics and the data, and then you put your own plan together. The other thing um, I'm hoping, we have 99 counties in Iowa, and we just have too much government, and if we want to continue to cut taxes, we need to look at that overall. And I didn't feel that I could go challenge 99 counties and local government to get their 
act together if I uh, didn't take a look at my, you know, get my own house together first. So I'm hoping I can be a real example for some of our uh, local governments in our 99 counties across the state of Iowa. We need, just need to do that differently too. Let me just ask one more workforce, government workforce question, and maybe we can jump back to, to Neil. So we, we talked briefly before we came on uh, about uh, collective bargaining reform in Iowa government, which I hadn't uh, learned about until yesterday when I was uh, reading up. So in 2017, I think just before the governor uh, came into office, uh, the state did uh, really a profound uh, reform of the uh, of uh, labor union regulations for government employees, and they, they seem really important, and that seems like a good model for other states to follow. It's been a a really good model and we've really seen uh, our agencies and our employees you know they are the face of state government and actually uh, the environment is so much better and they're able to advance based on merit and we've just in, in various agencies across the state have had such great outcomes uh, because of that but I said you know it's not often that you get an opportunity to take on a state monopoly and to be able to overhaul collective bargaining reform and then to be able to uh, bring in school choice as well with the with with from that perspective I think we've we've taken on two pretty big state monopolies and I and I think you know it, it we'll see we'll be able to show that those were absolutely absolutely the right decisions to do but we've been able to show that I think with collective bargaining reform so good, good outcomes and there's so there's two sorts of labor reforms that states will often do. There's, there's right to work, which is sort of the rules on uh, fundraising for private sector unions. But then there's collective bargaining within the government, which uh, state legislatures and governors have control over. And what they can negotiate, and that was part of the process. And so we've limited it to what they can negotiate is just uh, salaries, and then we've capped that at three percent. Now they can agree to bring in other negotiable items, but both parties have to agree before it comes to the table. Uh, law enforcement was the only exception to that. We did not include them in the collective bargaining reform, but um, it, it's contrary to what the naysayers said, state government still exists, and we're still able to continue to provide gr tremendous services to Iowans, and we've been able to do it in an in a effective manner. Yeah, this whole discussion actually makes me very happy about federalism and that we have it and that you can learn from other states and where they do something wrong, you don't have to do it. When you do something right, you can look at what others have done. And you mentioned occupational licensing, and that led me to a question that um, is sort of tied in with that. And Cato's got a new series of papers, which are a book about new American workers. And one other thing we talk about is college degree requirements to get especially jobs in government, but also licensure that would require it for maybe not good reasons, not actually seeing that degree means you can do something. Is that something that you're working on? I think we did address that in part of it because we had we had to look inside and see what some of our our requirements were and college degree was a big part of uh, that requirement. And so I think if not, if we haven't, we will. I'm looking at Taryn. We've done so much in the last couple of years. And then we've got another proposal that we're working on right now, red tape, where we put a moratorium on any new rules or regulations. And then we're having each agency review every rule that they have in their department and if it meets the new standard it can be renewed otherwise it's not going to be renewed so um, we're going through that process as well but that's a that was preventing so many people from getting into uh, the workforce and we were encouraging other private sector to do that and then we took a look at what we were doing and it was like oh my gosh we're putting those same restrictions in place and we need to to not to not do that so does that answer your question 
Yeah, okay. uh, it was. I was only thinking that because uh, Maryland, uh, actually a little while ago, removed a bunch of college requirements. Yep. And Pennsylvania's new governor was just talking about it. It seems like it's kind of picking up steam. And yep. I know you guys lead on a lot of yeah, good stuff. I think we've done that already. I know it's been part of the. Yeah, we have. I'm getting the from my chief of staff. Thank gosh for the chief of staff over there. <laughs> we have. I knew we had talked about it, but I said, well, I think it was kind of folded into some of that original round of um, workforce issues that we've been dealing with. But we do, we do a lot with work-based learning, STEM. I've been involved in STEM education since I've been a lieutenant governor. But again, it's the, it is just, it works, it works, it works. And especially for keeping our young people in rural Iowa because it connects them with the opportunities. Uh, they find out what they have a passion for. And um, sometimes it doesn't require a four-year degree. Sometimes it does. But a lot of times if they um, start with the business and they want to continue to advance in their career, no debt, um, making a living, and then if they want to advance, a lot of times the business will pay for them to go ahead and get a four-year degree. So it really is a smart it's to do. Not for all, but at least it's an option, and it should be. Um, I don't know when we, we're going to audience questions, but I have another, unless you're... You ready? Okay. So this gets a little bit philosophical into my one of my favorite questions. But um, as Jean mentioned, I'm sort of interested in educational freedom as a way to diffuse cultural and social conflicts. Obviously, this has been very big in across the country. Uh, I just we keep something called the public schooling battle map, which I always like to to sell. Um, but there are several school districts in Iowa, just as in everywhere, that have had conflicts recently about books in the library and things like that. Was some of the thinking behind the school choice push to enable people to choose what they think is the right the right values for their kids? in part so they don't have to sort of fight with their neighbors? Well, we've done both. Um, you know, we said no to critical race theory. We've said uh, we're, we're doing a parental rights bill that's working its way through the legislature right now that says actually parents are the decision makers for their children. I think it's so sad that we have to codify that in today's environment, but the fact of the matter is we have to. Uh, we've had school districts, uh, board, school boards that have said a seventh grader can decide if he shares information with the parent about pronouns or changes in names or whatever that may be, you know, just completely taking the parent uh, out of the child's education. Um, and so, you know, you can pass the various legislative bills to address some of that, but ultimately, you know, sometimes they find a way around it or it's just really hard to completely stop that. But by giving parents, all parents, the choice to decide what environment they want their child to receive their education, I, that is going to be the most effective because if nothing else, I mean, and I don't mean this in a negative way, sort of, but they understand money. Um, and so, you know, we're per pupil funding for the schools. And if you start to have I, the one school where the, they took the parents out of their child's education, they've had, and it's a larger school, but I think two, between two and 300 have already made the decision, parents have made the decision to leave that school district and go to another. We had open enrollment before we passed the, uh, the Students First Act. So that already, I mean, we've, so if you think about, we've sort of had it for quite some time. Uh, but this allows the funding to to go with it for the parent, but um, our ads private. But um, I think ultimately that will be the most impactful to drive different decisions and maybe get people back to or get schools back to the 
what parents expect, and that's just a quality education in core subjects and just kind of leave the rest to the home. We're going to turn to audience questions now, uh, both in person and online. The online audience can submit questions directly on the event webpage, Facebook, YouTube, and on Twitter using hashtag gov, gov report card. Um, please, uh, in this room, speak clearly and directly into the microphone uh, so everyone in the auditorium and online can hear the question. Uh, announce your name and affiliation if you think that's important. Um, and a couple other ground rules. Please do keep the focus on what we've been talking about today, fiscal, education, regulatory policy in the states, not Chinese spy balloons or Hunter Biden's laptop or whatever else you might be interested in that we're not talking about today. Uh, and finally, Please do make sure that uh, you get uh, pretty quickly in your question to something that ends with a question mark and no DC soliloquies, please. Uh, so with that, uh, do we have any questions? Uh, and raise your hand and uh, Chris will bring the microphone to you. Perfect. So we'll start with a question from our online audience. Uh, Alan asks to the governor, uh, keeping average spending down while expanding on initiatives that are important to Iowans must require cutting programs and spending. And you talked a little bit about this, um, what you'd looked at in your state uh, administration. What have you been able to cut or what lessons do you have for other states that you want to share? Well, we didn't cut. That was the point I was trying to making. Trying to make. We actually made historic investments in K-12 education. We've added new money to educate education every single year. I've invested in public safety. We've invested in broadband. We invested over $100 million in broadband. We're a rural state. And if we want to be successful and see prosperity in every single corner of our state, we need to be able to connect. It's the expectation of young people. They're not going to live there uh, if they can't connect. So it doesn't mean that. It means being more efficient and effective in the way that you deliver the services. It means growing revenue by letting Iowans and, and, and businesses be successful and grow. Uh, we had over 35,000, I think, new startups, small business startups last year. We set another record in the state of Iowa. Even in some very difficult times, we continue to see growth uh, in the in the state of Iowa. So, so that's a, encouraging. Again, it's not either or. I believe that you can do both. I believe we have a record of doing both, but you just have to be um, targeted in how you how you allocate the funds, and then um, hopefully continue to see um, growth in your state. And we believe you see that growth by reducing taxes. We think that's part of the uh, scenario. I think in twenty twenty one we had a eleven percent growth. Twenty two we had eleven percent growth. This year we're looking. They had projected about a negative one point nine, but we're running to date in revenue growth. Sorry, in revenue growth, but we are actually running at about five percent right now through um, January. So um, you know we're we're ahead of projections at this point. I mean, the key thing in recent years for a lot of states has just been that the, the I think it took all analysts by surprise that the in, in the uh, starting in sort of summer 2020 re revenues, state revenues initially dropped, but then they boomed and acro across many states, which took a lot of people by surprise. So a lot of states, they spent a lot of extra money. They sort of gave one time kind of tax breaks. Um, but then I think the sensible and smart states 
took the surpluses and they did essentially long-term investment, which was making their tax structure more competitive to to draw businesses and 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 yep. uh, and, and and households uh, to the state to benefit the state in the long term. Yeah. Uh, in the center there. Yeah, Governor, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, so my name is Josh Fertelman. I'm with the Mercatus Center. Uh, so we do a lot of study on regulatory growth. Uh, really excited about the um, regulatory moratorium. I'm curious, with that moratorium, I guess two two-part question with that. One, are you interested in some kind of target for reduction in regulations? Do you have a specific number in mind? And then two, I'm just curious, are there any particular regulations that are high on the target list, things you've heard from business groups that you really want to reduce? And we've already done some. Thank you for the question. First of all, I appreciate that. Um, so we, again, brought in a company to help monitor that so that we I can actually have data. So they've um, been able to account for all of the regulations that we have on the books right now, what that number looks like, the number of words. We're talking at a level that doesn't even make sense. Um, we have so many regulations that shouldn't even be on the books. They're outdated or um, really barriers to, to economic growth uh, in the state of Iowa. So we'll be able to benchmark this as we move along. We're just starting the process, but I think it was important to bring in um, the consultant to, to help us do that. Um, we're doing four agencies at a time, so I think we're spreading it out over four years so we can really be focused on um, each individual agency. And we'll just continue. You know, we just we don't want to be a barrier to economic growth. We have to do things reasonably. We have to make sure that we're um, providing safety, but we also want to make sure that we're a partner uh, in, with uh, business and industry and, and growth in the state of Iowa. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, I think we've laid out a pretty strategic and well thought out plan. Um, I just got a quick update, I think last week from my policy team that's running it. And so uh, they're ready to go and we'll keep you updated uh, as we move through. Because I think you also score on some things too. So yep, yep, yep. So I'll be interested to see uh, uh, where you have, we're not where we should be. I mean, we are way 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 out of whack again and we it you just tend to add and you never do the the hard work to take away and then there's a process if there are some new regulations that that absolutely need to put in place we've got a process uh, for them to be able to do that but we've tried to keep that fairly narrow as well yes ma'am right in the front yeah the mic's coming right My name is Joe Freeman. I write about women in politics and take photographs of women in politics. Iowa has been the home of some great women, starting with Carrie Chapman Catt. What are you doing to enhance women's opportunities at this time? Oh, thank you for that question. Uh, first of all, just being the first uh, female to lead the state of Iowa as a governor, I, I, I don't think I really even fully understood what the impact of that would be, but I can't tell you how many little girls recognize me and just want their picture taken or just want to come up and say hi. Um, I'm trying to lead by example, and it's not because they were a woman, but it's because they deserved it. My Almost my entire leadership team are women, and again, it's because they earned it, not because I was feeling a slot, but that also really sends a message uh, we come out to RGA and we get out of the car and walk in and I've got four really strong women that are surrounding me and I have had people stop 
and just comment on the fact that um, they just don't see that very often. So um, that's 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 encouraging. The other thing I do is um, when I'm in my office, I've got like a, I thought I might have made a wrong choice, but you know, the typical black big wing back chair, I thought, yeah, I'm going red. You know, I'm going to, I'm a girl, I'm going to do something different. But uh, anyway, when I have um, young girls in the office, I always try to have them set in the chair. Um, behind my desk and just really let them know that they can be anything they want to be. And if that's a mom or a teacher or if they want to be a president or a governor of the state, um, they can do that. So hopefully I'm leading by example and I've surrounded myself with very strong, articulate, capable, um, hard-charging, compassionate women. And uh, it's it's been fun to just uh, see the reaction that we get from um, women not only in the state of Iowa, but across the country when we travel and participate in other events. It's important. Chris. Coming from our online audience, Donna asks, how will Iowa protect the parents in private schools that participate and use ESA funds from regulation by the state that effectively turns them back into single management public schools? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in the bill, we have some autonomy language. And if you look at the other states, Arizona did this. So again, we were able to look at Florida and Arizona and see uh, the language that they used in their uh, school choice bill. It's been tested through the court. So that's always good too, because you want to put together a bill that's in the best place that it can be to succeed. You don't want to be caught up in litigation for years to come. And so we do have some autonomy language that's in there, they were fine with that. That was also a concern of a lot of our uh, legislators, too. So uh, we worked very closely with our private schools, too, to make sure that they were comfortable with that. And it, I think we really did a good job of striking a balance uh, with the language that we included in the bill. So, so when you talk about the, you, you have to make sure the statute won't be challenged in court, are you talking about federal regs or are you talking about state regs just, or both? Just state. I mean, ESAs are fine. We'll make it through. But you, you just have to, I guess, I have a spreadsheet of lawsuits. You know, it's just a litigious society that we live in. And so it's a way to slow things down sometimes too, especially if you don't agree with the bill. So we just, you, you really, with a really try hard, you know, we really work hard to make sure that we have legislation in the best possible position to be successful. And I got a great team that does that, but that's always something we're thinking about. And if you have other states that have put together legislation and it's gone through the process, which sometimes happens too, that's also helpful because case, there's case law there. It's very rare to see a school choice bill passed and not then challenged quickly in court, in part because unions are very powerful in most places and are very quick to say, we're going to strike it down because once families actually get to use it, it's much harder to take away because they want that kind of power. They want the choice. Mm -hmm. I think that's the other thing, too. Why one of the biggest outcomes I think of the bill will be is there's just a lot of fear-mongering out there, and there's just a lot of information that's not true. And I truly believe, because there's no data to support it, but yet will be another state that will be able to dispel a lot of the myths and the fear-mongering that you hear um, surrounding uh, educational choice. Hi, um, my name is um, McCluskey. I always um, better on that. I was for uh, 19 years at the University of Iowa on the faculty in economics and history. Go Hawks. Uh, I'm a cyclone girl, but I love the Hawks too, unless they're playing each other. Um, I'm extremely impressed by what 
what you've been able to do. It reminds me of the great Canadian feminist, the first mayor of female mayor of Ottawa, Canada, who said, in order to get half the credit, a woman has to do twice as well. Fortunately, this is not difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but I have got hey, a... Brian, there we go. There's a... <laughs> uh, I have got a question sure. about administrative bloat in the universities. It's the main complaint that faculty members all over the United States have that the number of administrators gets larger and larger. And I was intrigued by your point in your case of 12 uh, uh, um, subsidies, uh, giving more m money. You specify that it can't go to administration. Have you any plans to <laughs> do the same thing with the three uh, big st uh, st um, state funded universities? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. I had one of the school districts that the superintendent's over 2,000 <coughs> employees, and a half half is administration. Half. You know, my goodness. And then we wonder why we can't pay teachers what we should be paying them that are in the classroom every single day doing the hard work. And they have a purpose, so I don't mean that. But we just, that's ridiculous. You know, we, that's ridiculous. So I was, we were really excited when we were able to find uh, a mechanism that we could use ongoing funds because it's funds that's in the base so it rolls every year when we apply the uh, the state supplemental aid or whatever the increase is for um, education funding it continues to grow because it's a part of that so be able, so for them we had four categoricals teacher leadership um, oh, there were three different ones so we allowed them to take the onion unused portion or all of it and roll it into teacher salaries and but we specifically said in the bill it can only be used for teacher salaries uh, not for administrative positions at all so I think that might be a model that we can use other places yeah <laughs> One final question from online. Before so Alex asks, uh, the, the governor gets the pleasure of working with a Republican legislature, both in the House and the Senate, uh, but it took you several years to get uh, universal choice adopted. Can you walk us through some of the difficulties you ran into in the Republican caucus of educating your fellow Republicans on the values of school choice? So uh, for two years in a row, I started out just failing schools. I got it through the Senate, couldn't get it through the House came back, uh, and, and we Republicans control both chambers, came back the second year, we expanded it a little bit, we um, set a cap at 3,000, 5,000, but we tied it to income, so it was, you know, 300% of, of federal poverty, um, and, and some additional, you know, a lot of the similar other language that's a similar in this bill, passed the Senate again, only to be held up in the House by like two or three votes, and one of the um, individuals that was not helping it was the chair of the education committee. So I couldn't get them to take it to the floor for a vote because you make different decisions when you actually have to push yes 
or no. But if you're never forced to make that decision, you can say a lot of different, you can take a lot of different positions. Uh, and I served in the state Senate, so I can be hard on them because I was one of them. So, you know, I, I was one of those legislators at one point. So I had to make a very difficult decision, and it's not one that I took lightly, but I was either going to stand by and continue to be an enabler and not get this legislation passed, or I was going to weigh in on some of the primaries uh, with my own party. And so uh, I would go out to legislators that were running, especially in areas where there was a primary, and the chair of the education committee was one of those areas. I asked his opponent if she was in favor of school choice. It was one of her number one priorities. And so I weighed in on nine primary races. Um, I was able to, we, we flipped eight of them. So it was successful. I got the numbers. We got the numbers that we needed. And the ninth one, it was really, um, he just couldn't answer it. And so I just couldn't lend my endorsement. And it, endorsements only go so far. The issue won overwhelmingly. And that's what I kept telling them. This is what parents want. This is what parents want. I hear it as I travel all across the state. And um, uh, the, the individual that we didn't the, didn't win, uh, he met me the next day. I did an event down in his area, and he said, I'm all Team Reynolds. Uh, we're ready to go. And, and really, once we walked through the bill with him, he, vote, he voted for it, so was for it. So, um, again, not a decision that I made lightly, but it was the right thing to do, and we were able to, um, it went to a vote, and we were able to be successful in getting it across the finish line this year. All right. Thank you, Governor, Chris, Neil, and all of you for a great conversation. Uh, please join us outside in the foyer for lunch. Thanks a lot, Governor Reynolds. Thanks.